Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Rogue Report podcast in association with the Sunland Community Soup Kitchen. No Gav, unfortunately, today, so it's Chris in the host's chair. Not sure if I've drawn the short straw with that one, because, of course, following Sunderland is pretty boring and uneventful, so not not much really happens in the world of uh, Sunderland Football Club. Uh, But I'm sure we can find one or two topics to cover following the last few days. And to help me make sense of the recent events and dissect a home defeat, if we have time, uh, we first have the company of Roker Report's very own Twitter spaces extraordinaire, Phil West. Hello, Phil. Hello, Chris. How are you? Um, not, I, I don't know, actually. I'm hoping I'm <laughs> going to feel be- better after after we uh, discuss it and kind of yeah. dissect it all and go through it. Because I, I was going to ask you, actually, Phil, because um, I'm sure quite a lot of the people who listen to this listen to the spaces on Friday. I mean... I mean, I don't want to get too much into detail because we'll go through it all. But would you say, kind of, you've calmed down slightly since? Because that was pretty raw on Friday, wasn't it? Very much so. And and I think now, you know, with the passage of a bit more time, I think I've taken more of a kind of a clear perspective on it now. And from my point of view, Chris, we have to crack on. We have to progress. We have to get over the fact that Alex Neal is no longer going to be the Sunderland head coach. It's been a bit of departure. It's going to be, leave a lot of bad feeling. But there's a game to be played on Wednesday. There's a season that we've got to keep on working through. And I'm starting to move on now, absolutely. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting, actually, Phil, because I'm sure people who listen to that will be interested to see, you know, how the moods change with with, with you specifically, Phil, because yeah. uh, you might be a bit of a barometer. But, uh, but uh, yeah, looking forward to that, Phil. And then, in addition to Phil, we have someone who hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, can help us fill in one or two gaps, um, as well as his usual expert analysis of the game. It is, of course, BBC Newcastle's Nick Barnes. Hello, Nick. Hello. Yeah, I agree with Phil. That's sort of the last... 24 hours has given me a sort of uh, a more rounded view of what's gone on over the last 48 hours, if you like. Um, and, and as Phil says, time to crack on, really. And, and you know, the next step is is Rotherham on Wednesday night. And, and hopefully we avoid the circus that we had last time round when Alex Neal was appointed. And it took uh, two weeks with a maelstrom of things going on all the time during those two weeks. So fingers crossed we avoid that. Yeah. Well, look, let's get into it because there is, um, because shortness said, there is a, a lot to get through <laughs> that's happened over the last kind of 72 hours or 48 hours. Or, well, it's felt like about a month, but but there's a lot happened recently, put it that way. Um, so look, let, let's cover Alex Neil and all that comes with that story first. And let's try and make some sense of it. Um and I want to try and kind of go backwards um, a little bit and kind of work <laughs> work from the beginning because 
you know, we'll come on to the events of the last two or three days um, and how you saw that unfold, Nick. But but to start off, I want to look, kind of look back at the relationship from when Alex Neil was appointed. Um, I mean, just going back to just a couple of things. I mean, there seemed to be early public criticism by Alex Neil on the January transfer fin- window. Then people picked up on an uncomfortable moment with the manager and the owner at Wembley, which was possibly something, possibly nothing. Then, I mean, there's there's other similar hints, rumours that I could probably raise along those lines. But before any of this played out over the last couple of days, did any of your interactions in the kind of months prior suggest what the relationships were like behind the scenes? Um, There were a couple of telltale signs. I think um, certainly over the last month, and, and really this has been exacerbated by the transfer window, the press conferences, the pre-match press conferences more than the post-match press conferences were really sort of, um, I mean, an exercise I suppose everybody, you know, inevitably goes through in the transfer windows of every press conference asking the head coach or manager, anybody coming in, anybody leaving. And as a result of that, you naturally get um, some sort of quite tetchy responses sometimes if things aren't going well, if things are going well, you tend to get um, a much more considered uh, approach and, and generally maybe an off-the-record nod that something's going to be happening. But we certainly got over the last three or four weeks uh, a more and more tetchy Alex Neil, who, who who was clearly becoming very frustrated about the lack of business, if you like, in in, in the window to a point where, it, you know, it it, it it almost looked like there was there was clearly something not right uh, inside the the camp if you like though his tone bizarrely changed it was almost like a u-turn before the stoke city match when he was all very positive and all very forthcoming and suggested to me that someone within the club had said look you're you're sounding very negative you've got to be more upbeat in press conferences you you've got to uh, you know give portray the transfer window in a, in a much better light and so i i wasn't unduly concerned because I, I we've been here before but then on that timeline we went to Stoke and it's a it's a it's a bit of a bizarre thing but um after the game Alex Neil did his usual um post-match interview and it was just with me actually because of one thing or another at the end of the tunnel at the end of the interview uh, he shook my hand which he's never done before it's a, it's a very unusual th- you know, you get to know, I mean, now we're post-Zoom, we're, we're face-to-face with the head coach and you, you do get to know sort of their ticks, their verbal ticks, what makes them tick. And he'd never done that before. The last time that happened to me was when David Moyes left the club at Chelsea on the last day of the season. He came across and shook mine and Phil Smith of the Sunderland Echo's hands by way of saying goodbye. For me, I you know, didn't think too much about it at the weekend at Stoke, but I did feel it did nag at me that that was a see you, um, a shake of the hands, a farewell shake of the hands. Now, as it's turned out, it was. Um, So, you know, my sort of intuition, my suspicion that weekend um, subconsciously was right. But going back to your initial question about what, you know, were things going well at the club? I don't think they were. I think there have been issues. Um, but to all intents and purposes, um, you, you know, you think if there are problems, people talk them out, um, you talk them through, uh, and, and by Alex Neil's demeanour before the Stoke game, everything seemed to be okay. But now, 
I think we know they weren't. I mean, and there, there were issues, but um, it, it's it's a strange one because I think you know Alex Neil when he came in, um, my feeling was he's not the sort of coach that will buy into the the model that Sunderland have adopted. I think he he made a comment soon after he arrived that had he arrived during the transfer window, he would have signed two experienced players. And I think what is always um, I think. Uh, unnerved me, if you like, a little bit, is that he, I think, at the back of his mind, would preferably like a, a, a policy where they can sign more experienced players and, if needs be, pay for them. Because the problem is they won't pay for anybody over the age of 24. So if you're looking for experienced players, it's out of contract or free transfers. So I, I, I always had that sort of niggling feeling, nagging feeling, that uh, Alex Neil was never wholly comfortable with the model, if you like. Um, now, he always made the right noises about, yeah, I can work within this, I can, you know, I, I don't mind this, it's fine, blah, blah, blah. I used to do this at Norwich, but I'm, I'm, I'm still not convinced that that was the case. And I think if you've got uh, a, a doubt, in the end, it will fester. And I think ultimately, and it's not the reason he left, but I think it's part of the, um, part of the sort of underlying, if, if you like, reasons him going and just, just before I, I kind of bring you in uh, Phil I mean just on a similar thing Nick um, because you just mentioned Christian Speakman there in terms of that relationship was there any relationship between Alex Neil and Kirill Louis-Dreyfus or does Kirill Louis-Dreyfus kind of run things from afar and at arm's length um, that is pretty much the case I mean Christian Speakman is the conduit if you like for Kirill Louis-Dreyfus as I understand it Alex Neil has only had one or two, three or four conversations with Kirill Louis-Dreyfus in the time that he's been at the club. The conversations are with Christian. Christian Speakman is the, is the mouthpiece for Kirill Louis-Dreyfus. So all the, you know, everything that's gone on will largely have been orchestrated and dealt with by Christian Speakman. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Phil, you kind of raised a lot of this on, on Friday on the, on the Twitter spaces, but um and and I might be sounding disrespectful, you know, but the move to Stoke, to be fair, has confused more than just Sunderland fans. You know, I yeah. think Paul Merson, Paul Merson started hinting at it, and I think he had a slightly backtrack on Soccer Saturday. I think he was about to say he didn't understand it, and we might be biased, but look, I mean, if we're honest, it does suggest that there was more than just football kind of considerations, whether it's something behind the scenes, geography, money, whatever it is. But like I said, it's not just Sunderland fans. I've had messages from Ipswich fans, Tottenham fans, Liverpool fans asking what's going on and, and why he's made the move. So, yeah. I mean, is is that where you're at, that, you know, this is more than just, you know, moving from Sunderland to Stoke? There's more to it than that. And do you think it'll come out? Yeah, I absolutely do, Chris. And I think, you know, Yesterday, before the game, in the fifteen minutes leading us up to kick off, when you know the atmosphere was really starting to build, I was just looking around the stadium as it was filling up, and obviously I'm speaking through red and white eyes here. But I did not, I could not wrap my head around the fact why any coach would want to swap the potential of Sunderland at this moment in time for Stoke City. Now that's not, I mean that with no disrespect to Stoke because they're, you know, they're a good traditional football club, but the paths of the two clubs are on. You know, we're on very different traje- trajectories at this moment in time, in my opinion. You know, Sunderland are trying to be forward thinking. They've got this new model in place. They're trying to evolve. They're trying to move the club into a new era. And Stoke have obviously been, you know, hindered by financial fair play. They've got, you know, they've got a lot of kind of older players in their squad. Phil Jagielka, for example. And um, so that that did um, 
confuse me, to be honest with you. And it still does. And I absolutely think that there is more to this than meets the eye. But I just wanted to pick up on a point that Nick made there. And over the summer, one of my kind of main concerns was how Alex Neal and Christian Speakman could work together. Because I think Alex Neal is very much a manager stroke coach of the old school. And I think he wanted to take the path of least resistance to promotion with Sunderland to the Premiership, having gained championship status. Um, and I think, obviously, Christian Speakman and the club want to move in a very different direction. So I think there was always the potential there for an element of friction for, you know, maybe not quite getting along in terms of what they saw as their vision for the football club. So, yeah, you know, it, it, it is a shock in, in one sense, but, you know, th- th- there is definitely more to this than meets the eye. And I can't quite pinpoint what it is, but it just, it just, it just all feels to me as if there's something else going on behind the scenes. And I do think it will come out. Yeah, I think, obviously, Speakman's interview yesterday before the game, he couldn't really say much because, obviously, the process is still going on. But I think once Alex Neal is confirmed at Stoke and we do have our replacement in, I think then it will all come out with a wash and I would expect there to be a lot more than we've found out so far. Can I put a bit of context on this? Because I know what happened um, Friday, Saturday with Alex Neal and with with the club. I mean, this goes back um, to uh, Alex signed a new contract four weeks ago. Um, When I say new contract, it's, it's effectively an embellishment of his existing contract. Still a rolling contract, but the money's gone up um, and uh, various bonuses and so on. So an embellished contract was signed four weeks ago. Um, I think the the club felt it wasn't worth sort of highlighting because it was effectively, you know, the same contract, but with, you know, more bells and buzzers on it, if you like. Um, What this has all come down to ultimately is, is, is money and the club's model. The, the club has a ceiling at which it won't go above a certain level in terms of paying, you know, to put it basically. You know, they will, they will pay, and in this case, Alex Neal, X amount of money, but they won't go above that. Um, now, Stoke City, as I understand it, have come in and are offering or are willing to pay, and they will pay double what Sunderland are paying Alex Neal. Ultimately, it's come down to money. Alex Neal is not a sentimentalist. He's not a romantic. He's he's pragmatic. Um, you know, he, he's 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 a football man, but ultimately, you know, he's got his own ego as well, if you like, his own ambitions. But you know, like any of us, if if someone came along to me or you in our line of work and offered us double the money, there's a fair chance we'd probably go. Now, I think taking that into consideration, then, as I said at the weekend. If everything was right at Sunderland, Alex Neal would still be here. The fact that he's gone means there's something wrong. Now, part of that is Alex Neal's, I think, disenchantment with, um, you know, the, the 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 value, if you like, the club held him in. You know, that his his view would be that he's undervalued by Sunderland, and that he's valued by Stoke City. Also added to that is he's close to his family. You know, it's an hour's drive for him. From where he lives to, to Stoke City, uh, which was which is a factor, um, but ultimately, I, I, from what I understand, Alex Neal has no problem with the, you know, he understands the size of Sunderland, he understands the fan base, he understands that anybody, you know, would walk into this club because of the size of club that it is. But the pragmatist in him, the um, the ego in him, um, and 
ultimately the money being offered by Stoke City. And Stoke is a club he knows well, and the owners he knows very well indeed. And the owners got deep pockets. Now they're in FFP at the minute, and they do have to lose three players by Wednesday. Next season they can spend again. And that doesn't preclude them spending money on him, for instance, because that doesn't come within FFP. So taking that all in, in the round, I think both parties, to a certain extent, are to blame here. I think the club would put their hand up and say, we really should have dealt with this in May after the playoff final, but we've let it go, if you like. And I think Alex Neil probably, with hindsight, might say, well, maybe you know, maybe there's a little element of me throwing my, my toys out of the pram. Maybe I should have reined myself in a little bit and maybe the two could have met in the middle. But I think um, it got to a point where the, the, too much had gone on um, in terms of you know neither party had come to the table and really thrashed it out that it was too late, if that makes sense. Yeah, one of the few things that has actually kind of leaked out or maybe leaked out. I'm not sure if it's something Alex Neil has maybe shared or something that's possibly just... <laughs> Um, made up social media nonsense um but the, there has been this line that's being pulled out this year that he, he felt like he hadn't been backed now what you no I, that's that's no that's not true i mean i do know that's not true i mean i do he does there is there's a there's an issue with some of the fees that have been mentioned because the fees that have been mentioned for jack clark and dan ballard are nothing like actually the fees that were actually paid and that has become a bit of a i think um, social media has sort of exacerbated that and made sort of made it a bit of a story, a bit of an issue. Because what's happened is that other clubs have turned around and say, "Well, Sunderland have been the big spenders." And in fact, they haven't. Um, that's been a bit misleading. But this, this isn't, this isn't Alex Neil. Alex Neil leaving is not to do with transfers. Yeah. It is. I mean, the bottom line is, is, it is all to do with money. Well, I mean, you've got me in shock here, Nick. That something was made up on social media and kind of blown up <laughs> um, to all proportions. But I mean, but but I was what I was going to ask was, you know, because they could have a kind of a double meaning, you know, whether you back Alex Neil in the transfer market or, as you were saying, Nick, did he feel like the club weren't backing him? In terms of saying you're our man, there's a five year contract. There's a there's a wage to reflect being you know yes at now a championship club. That's the nub of it. That's the nub of it. I mean that's the, I mean I don't and it's it's a it's a it's a in a, in some ways it's a long term issue with the football club. It's not just um, for instance Alex Neil feeling maybe undervalued. I think the players, the staff, you only have to talk to the stewards at the, on a match day at the Stadium of Light. Um, I think they feel. That then they're not, you know, they're 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 underpaid if you like. If you if someone mentioned to me yesterday, one of the stewards saying that the stewards at Hartlepool are paid three pounds more an hour than they are at Sunderland. There is an on is an ongoing timeline, if you like, of, of disenchantment amongst staff um, and so on at the football club. Now this is a this is something the club's got to, you know, address as they move forwards now with this, you know, Kirill and. Steve Davison, Christian, they've all got to uh, embrace that the club's changing, but there are issues that do probably need to get sorted sooner rather than later, because these are the sort of problems that will fester ultimately and, and you know, it becomes a bigger problem. But you're right that, you're, that you know, in a way, what you've just said about, you know, I, I, I'm going back to May and Wembley, the, the club really should have sat down then and said to, to Alex Neil. Let right. Let's let's sort this out. Long term contract. This is the aim, and that that didn't happen. 
Um, now that might both parties can be guilty. I mean, Alex Neil could be guilty of not pushing on the door for and, and demanding those talks. The club can be you know accused of maybe putting their heads in the sand and thinking everything will be okay. But obviously, you know, it's all come to a head over the last weekend. But um, yeah, ultimately, it's about feeling valued and, and and about you know rewarding, if you like people for the work that they do. Yeah, yeah. And you only need to look at the poor ticket office stuff and club shop stuff as well, but Exactly. That is a good example, yeah. That's a whole that's a whole podcast on its own. Um I'll, I'll bring you in in a second Phil, but just one more question on that Nick, um in terms of being backed. The one the one more well the one additional thing I found was strange was the whole and, and Phil you mentioned that Christian Speakman interview, but I mean, Nick, you know, that whole concept of, well, he's talking to someone else and we're suddenly scrambling and we're offering him, we're making him a new offer. I mean, that that whole thing to me just sounds odd and strange that he's going to talk to a different club and you're suddenly scrambling again saying, oh, we need to make him a better offer. So they they must know that there's an issue with that sort of structure in place. I, I think... Um, I I don't think the club will accept it as an issue. I think what the club will say is that we've got a model and the structure's in place now. Um, you, you may lose the, the head of the structure in, in this sense, Alex Neal as head coach, but we, you've still got a sporting director, chief operating officer, head of academy. Well, they will get a head of academy and so on. There's a structure in place. The theory is, as the theory is at Brentford, um, Barnsley, I think Brighton's the other club, that the the manager or the head coach can leave, but a new one can just slot in and pick up where the last one left off. Do you see what I mean? Mm. So it, it's not like a new coach comes in and then says, right, I want, I want to get rid of all the coaching staff. I want to reshape the academy. I want to reshape the first team. I want to reshape the under-21s. The model that Sunderland have got now means that won't happen. Whoever comes in buys into the, the model. They come in, they pick up where Alex Neal left off on Friday. They come in, take training on Tuesday, Wednesday, whenever it might be, and their squad's there. Christian Speakman's dealing with Stuart Harvey on the recruitment side. You're involved in that, but ultimately that part of the job has been removed, if you like, from the head coach manager role. So that that's where Sunderland are coming from now. And I don't think they see that as a problem. Um, now, whether, whether that's right or wrong, only time will tell, I suppose, because we won't know if this model's working for another three or four years when the young players that they've been bringing in now have reached their maturity, if you like, and have they got a value to sell on, which is the whole point of the model. Um, so th- at the moment, the context is I don't think the club are unnecessarily panicking because they've got what they believe in, a model that they think works and is sustainable. So now, you know, as I say, whether that's right or wrong, only time will tell. But I think that's where the club has positioned itself at the minute. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just going back to the reaction, Phil, and, you know, kind of a typical fan, you know, I don't know about you, but, you know, since I heard the news, um, I think it was Friday, Friday morning, um, I was out with the kids. <laughs> I told them to be quiet while Talksport was was on, and I actually heard uh, heard the news um, the first time. Um, I've gone through quite a f- you know few emotional states. You know, denial, anger, you know, anger again, resignation, anger again, um, and then optimism at the end. 
um, I think was my journey from memory. Um, and, you know, I saw that we haven't had a manager leave for another club since 1978 as well. So it doesn't happen to Sunderland all that often. But do you think this could actually, in a, you know, kind of in a weird way, galvanise the fans in that we all agree we've been put through the ringer and we agree on something? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was illustrated yesterday. There was a real atmosphere of defiance inside that stadium when that game kicked off yesterday, Chris. You know, when, when Ready to Go was blasting out and the players were walking on, you know, down the tunnel onto the pitch, everybody was in full voice. You know, there was a real atmosphere. It was an air of, you know, and I, I said before the game is that it's Sunderland AFC. It's not Alex Neal AFC. You know, I've always said that no man is bigger than a football club. You can't orbit a football club around one man. Because if you do, if you put that Messiah label on someone, if and when he leaves, and we saw it with Roy Keane, for example, you know, everyone comes back down to earth with a heck of a bump. So, yeah, I, I do think that it will galvanise them. And, you know, we'll probably come on to this later in the podcast. But, you know, the performance from the players yesterday was that of a team who were desperate to show that they're still a good team. They're a competitive team. They've got the heart for the fight. And, OK, they might have lost their head coach, but they haven't lost the qualities that that head coach instilled in them. And that's important. So, yeah, I, I do think it will galvanise the fan base, you know, and I think that I think that there was a real sense of togetherness in that stadium yesterday. I thought that before kick-off, you know, I was walking around the stadium before the game, there was a bit of a sense of uncertainty. I mean, it was bizarre to open the match programme and read the notes from a coach who was effectively cleared his desk, is checked out with the club and is on his way to a different employer. That was a bit strange, but nevertheless. Um, but, yeah, I, I, you know, the, it, was, it was a kind of a sense of, you know, what's going on here type of thing. But, like I said, when that whistle blew to start the game, it was down to business, and I thought the players and the fans were absolutely magnificent. So, yeah, I do think it will galvanise them, Chris, because you have to remember that, you know, this summer has been one of incredible optimism at Sunderland AFC. You know, there's been a lot of, you know, positivity going around. And I don't necessarily think that Alex Neal's departure will torpedo that. I think that if we get a good replacement in, the team's in a good position, they've got some good players. I don't necessarily think that this really derails things and all the progress that's been made at the club, because... There has been a lot of progress made at the at the football club, certainly on the football side of it. The infrastructure off the field, as we know, is a bit of a mess, you know, and the ticket office is a problem and the, the club shop's an issue and all the rest of it. But on the pitch, there have been great strides made forward. And I'd like to think that Neil's departure will not undo all of that. And as I said, I think if they get the, a good quality replacement in, as Nick said, it's, you know, they slot in seamlessly. You don't need to rip the whole thing up and start again. I think we could continue with the forward momentum. So, yeah. You know, initial pessimism about it on Friday when the news broke, and then you get a little bit angry because you feel a bit like a jilted lover. Um, but then, you know, after the game yesterday and this morning, you wake up and you think, yeah, the football club's still there. We've still got good players. The fans are still there. We're going to keep on moving forward. Yeah, you do. You do wonder if Alex Neil wrote those program notes while he was on a conference call during the week with the store, yeah, uh, with the yeah. store chairman or something like that. But I mean, just just quickly, fell on the fans. I mean, do you think everyone's gone in that kind of cycle of? you know, <laughs> complete anger and, you know, bewilderment and then to, to a full cycle to think, well, you know, stuff them, you know, what's next? Well, yeah, I mean, I do think there was, you know, judging by the mood on social media, I do think there are some people who who think that Christian Speakman has a role to play in this. And I think that, because you have to remember, you know this as well as anybody, Chris, you know, there are vast swathes of the fan base who aren't entirely convinced by Speakman. You know, they're not exactly fully behind the model that he's trying to implement. There's a little bit of uncertainty there. And obviously, because of that, the impact that Neil had during his time at the club, obviously ending the League One purgatory, you know, finally ending the playoff curse, getting us back into the championship, he built up an incredible amount of goodwill. And the narrative was is that, you know, Speakman was effectively got off the hook by Neil when he came in because, you know, there was the, the, the transfer window in January wasn't the best. And, you know, we'd flirted with Roy Keane and Neil comes in, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, so yeah, I, I I don't necessarily think that the entire fan base is now of an anti-Neil stance. I do think there are plenty of people who feel that he's been hung out to dry by the football club. But I also got the sense during the game yesterday that there's a lot of people who do, as I said earlier, who do feel that you know the football club has to be bigger than just Alex Neil. You know, and that's not to downplay the job he did because he did a phenomenal job. I think that's what makes it even more painful is that you know I think we only kind of scratched the surface of what Neil could have achieved at Sunderland. You know, I think we really could have solidified us in the championship, maybe even mounted a promotion push with time. But it's not going to happen. Obviously, they've parted ways. But yeah, I think that you know, I think that by the time that Rotherham game kicks off on Wednesday, hopefully with a new head coach in place, I do think that Alex Neil will be the memory of Alex Neil will slowly start to fade into the rearview mirror with an acknowledgement, albeit of the good work he did. You mustn't forget that, and I don't think people will. But at the end of the day, we have to move on. Yeah, and maybe it's a case, like you said, Phil. Maybe it's a case that Alex Neil felt within you know, within the structure Nick described, he, he just couldn't reach the heights that, that you're talking yeah. about. But, I mean, just just on a last point about Alex Neil leaving, Nick, um, you have much more interaction with the players and managers, obviously, than than we do. Um, I mean, when it comes to, you know, you know, when it comes to moves like this, um, you know, there were, there was a feeling kind of around the place that, um, you know, state of shock. And there was a lot of rumours that a number of the players didn't react well to the news of Alex Neil leaving. I mean, was there any feeling or suggestion that that was the case off the pitch? Well, I, I, I was told the players had gone to see Christian Speakman on, on Friday to, to voice their concern or unhappiness. And I think that, that, that's understandable. I mean, I think that you know, one thing that Alex Neil did achieve in the time that he was here, other than the obvious, was he has, has um, got a very tight-knit group they, they, you know, he you've got to hand it to him. He, what he's engendered within that squad is, you know, a real team spirit. That's down to Alex Neil. He's come in and he's produced that, and it's very, very strong. I think, you know, echoing what Phil said about the performance yesterday, you could see that on the pitch. That is a very, very strong unit. That you know, there's a it, it's a it's a very strong squad in terms of individuals and as a group. They are very much in this together, and I think you know Alex Neil. Um, has got to take you know much of the credit for that, and so I can understand why the players on Friday would have been you know shocked. I mean they'd have found out from Alex Neil on Friday morning uh, when he went round to say his goodbyes at the academy and having taken training. So I think you know that that emotion would have been quite raw. I think on Friday, but I think you know they are also, and we saw this yesterday, professional footballers. They've got a job to do, and and they could have we could have seen the situation as we did at you know earlier in in the year. Cheltenham, Doncaster Rovers, where they just imploded. In fact, we saw the opposite. And Corey Evans came out yesterday and we spoke to him after the game. And he said they learnt a lot from that experience. You know, they didn't want a repeat of what happened when Lee Johnson left. And that has been taken into this weekend in the game against Norwich. And I think you could see that. Phil's right. You know, this is not a bad group of players. That This is a very, very good team. And over the next, you know, five days, hopefully... It'll be bolstered even more, um, you know. So fundamentally, you know, it's not broken. And I agree with Phil. You know, we move on now. Whoever comes in picks up the reins, and, and you know, it, much in the same way that we are sort of realigning ourselves with what Lee Johnson did to a certain extent. Lee Johnson wasn't a bad manager when he left. The club were third in League One. That's not bad management. It's just that. There were various things didn't work for him and, and it had come to a point where, yes, lots 
was going on and it wasn't the, the way forwards. But Alex Neal came in, picked up the reins with what was a good, you know, ultimately, you know, not a bad squad. And we're in that position again now. So it's, it, it's um, you know, football, it, uh, come back to what Phil said earlier as well. And it, this is important, I think, you know, no one's bigger than the football club. Um, and, and that football club now goes into a game against Rotherham on Wednesday and, and moves on. And that, that's the bottom line. Right. On to the match now, because um, it's easy to forget that there was a match um, in the last couple of days. Um, a 1-0 home defeat to recently relegated Norwich City, which I think we've mentioned already. Um, I mean, Phil, as you've already kind of touched upon, you know, the attitude from, from the players. I mean, we came flying out of the blocks. I mean, pinned Norwich in, high press. Um, but it was just in that period where we just couldn't find that moment. We couldn't find that pass. We couldn't find yeah. that finish. And that's when we needed it. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you know, I think it's interesting, um, Chris, that you know the two league defeats we've suffered so far this season, obviously to Sheffield United and to Norwich, were against teams who have a lot of players who have Premier League experience, and particularly in the case of Norwich. I mean, you look at their team that they were able to field yesterday. To all intents and purposes, it's essentially very, very similar to the team that were relegated from the Premier League. And when they're bringing on Todd Campwell and Timu Puki from the bench, not even in the starting eleven, from the bench. That's where your difference is, really. But, you know, on certainly in the first half, I mean, the, the first 45 minutes for Sunderland were absolutely fantastic. They came out, loads of energy, loads of intent, loads of aggression. They were pressing them. You know, um, I thought that Ella Sims and Ross Stewart were working very hard up front to, to keep their Norwich bat line under pressure. And we, we were creating chances. And I, I think, you know, you said this in, in your post-match write-up, is that on another day, we do find that killer pass. The ball, you know, we do bury that chance. And, and, and the whole dynamic of the game changes. So I think the most encouraging thing, certainly for me, Chris, just looking at the game as a whole, I mean, okay, we ran out of steam a little bit towards the end, um, to, towards the end of the game, certainly when Norwich brought on their substitutes. But, you know, my big takeaway from the game yesterday, similar to Sheffield United, was we did not at any stage look out of our depth, overawed, bullied physically. Um, and we didn't look as if we were rabbits in the headlines when faced with a very, very capable championship opponent. So I think that was the most encouraging thing. And again, I think that, you know, the qualities, you know, that have been instilled in this team, that real team spirit, as Nick said, this Sunderland team has a better team spirit than any Sunderland team I can remember for a long, long time. It's not a group of fractured players with egos running all over the place. It's a tight-knit, you know, well-drilled squad of football players. And I think that that showed yesterday. So, yeah, you know, I, I think... We, you know, that, that was a proper championship game yesterday. It was full-blooded. It was full-throttled. You know, I thought Norwich actually played very, very well at times as well. I thought they were a very capable opponent. I thought Dean Smith's got them set up really, really well. And they'll be up there challenging for promotion. Um, but again, it's just those fine margins, isn't it? You know, and obviously the move, which I'm sure we'll come on to, that let the Norwiches go. It just goes to show that if you slack, even for a millisecond in this division, you will be punished. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, obviously the defeat was, was, was a setback, but... I think the performance showed that this team is capable of being competitive at this level, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, and Nick, for you, I mean, was that how you saw it? That maybe on another day we'd have been one or two up by half time? Because the other point I wanted to raise about that high press, and we did it. I mean, it was great to watch. It gets the fans' backs up, the fans are up for it. But at times, in that, especially in that first half when we were really pressing high, that it did leave us open quite often when we gave a, a loose pass that Norwich were on it and Norwich broke and looked dangerous. And in the second half, when Norwich, when Dean Smith did something about it at half time, 
that we didn't seem to have a plan B and then we struggled after that for, for a period. Yeah, I, I agree with everything that Phil said. But on, on top of that, as you say, I mean, it, it is fine lines. I mean, the woodwork twice, one off the line um, on another afternoon that, you know, that they could have been goals. I mean, it's and I, my, my, I, I think Sunderland yesterday at the very least deserved a point and probably you can argue deserved all three. But this is a, this is, you know, this is a cutthroat division, and and the difference is, as Phil has said already, is that that you know that's a Premier League squad and a Premier League bench, if you like. And at the moment, Norwich can make those changes and, and they can affect the game. Sunderland can't affect the game with their bench, and that's become a bit of an issue, you know, at the start of the season. When we look at those two defeats, Sheffield United, and when it was because of indiscipline, we lose a player, um, and. Then yesterday, it's because in the last 15, 20 minutes, Sunderland didn't have the legs. And I think, you know, I mean, Benno during the game was saying, well, why aren't they getting Embleton on? And he's standing on the touchline, get him on. Even though it's only one player, it's fresh legs because you've got players, you can see like Dan Neal, who's taken his tapes off his socks. He's just shattered. He, you know, he's back on the halfway line because he can't track back all the way from the penalty area because he's just dead. You know, so... The, the, the bench at the moment is not strong enough to, to be able to affect the game in the latter stages, which is where, I guess, it's, it, that's Sunderland's Achilles heel at the moment, where an experienced team like Norwich, that's where they take advantage, um, as, as did Coventry on the opening day. That's where these teams, uh, you know, their championship experience, they, they're, they're canny in that respect, they've got strong benches, they bring on fresh legs, and that's where Sunderland are being punished. Will say I thought Luke O'Neill had his best game this season yesterday, but the fact that he did have a really good game at the back suggests that Norwich did have quite a lot of the ball and were pressing a lot on the Sunderland penalty area. But at the same time, overall, unquestionably, this team doesn't look overawed in this division. Once they get the window over, and if hopefully, fingers crossed, they've got you know three or four more players in, and and they can address this issue of substitutions and the bench. They're as good as anybody in the division, and I don't. I've got no fears of them staying in the championship this season. Um, it's just those small things, and it's and as Phil said, it's the it's fine lines, it's small margins. Something that Alex Neil has been banging on about, you know, in the time at the club, always says the difference at this level is you'll be punished for one small thing. You know, you've got to be alert from minute one to minute ninety six, and at the minute, Sunderland's still learning how to deal with that particular problem if you like that that you know it's not minute one to minute um 96 at the moment minute one to minute 80 they're probably they're probably fine it's minute 80 to minute 96 to me is the big issue at the minute yeah yeah and and i hate to say this phil but you know building off you know what nick's just said there about the substitutions we've because we've talked about you know alex nearly enough but you know dean smith made a triple substitution on the hour that changed the game but you've mentioned that quality that he, he was able to bring on but as as Nick said, we didn't bring any fresh legs on at, at all um, until yeah. I think it was about fifteen minutes left when kind of we were then chasing the game. But Alex Neil's had a good record with spotting the need for changes during games. Do you think we actually missed him on the sideline? I think maybe we did. Yeah, I think maybe we did. Um, I mean, where I was sitting in the stadium, you know, as, as the minutes were ticking by, you know, there was a pocket of supporters just yelling at the top of the lungs down towards the dugout, make some changes, make some changes, make some changes. And I do think we, I think I do think the timing of them was was a little bit off yesterday. I have to say, um, but the other thing as well, Chris, that I'd like to just mention as well is that I think that you mentioned that, that you know the full throttle start of the game from Sunderland, and 
you know, Norwich at times, and as you mentioned, you know, they slowed the game down, they took the sting out of it here and there. They were able to kind of shift the dynamic of the game as the game was still going on. I'd like to see Sunderland be able to master that. And, you know, if you, for every 15 minutes that you go in full throttle, I think you need to spend a couple of minutes just taking the sting out of it, just dialing it down a little bit, slowing it down, so you're not, you know, absolutely shattered, as Nick said, towards the end of the game, and you can still you can still affect it, you know. So I think in-game management from the players and from the coaching staff could be better. I think that that's an area to improve. Um, but again, you know, you, you're learning about that as, as the games are going by, and, you know, what, what you might have got away with in League One, you absolutely aren't going to get away with in the championship in terms of, you know, your timing and your substitutions, being able to, you know, know when to kind of, you know, play for time, etc., etc. So everybody is kind of taking a step into the unknown in, in that sense, really. I mean, we do have a smattering of championship experience within the ranks, and obviously like Danny Bart, Corey Evans, etc., etc., you know, and Alex Pritchard as well. But, you know, it's the younger players that have really got to get, got to get streetwise here sharpen up and learn that you know this is not league one anymore it's the championship it's more open it's it's going to be more demanding on you mentally and physically and you've got to get with that as quickly as you can so yeah i think that you know but the problem at the minute is is that when we do turn to the bench there is a bit of a drop off in quality and you know as as, as we, you know when dean smith can turn to his substitutes bench and he can bring on the likes of pookie and campwell you know we're, we're looking at and we're bringing on M. Bolton and roberts etc very good players but are oh, they that kind of difference maker at that moment in the game? So, yeah, I think it could be better, Chris, without a doubt. Yeah. Well, it sounded like you could hear Gary Bennett screaming um, <laughs> to make the changes from, from where you were sitting. But, but I mean, I mean, just on that, on, on Phil's point, Nick, uh, I, and it was clear in the game because Dean Smith, Dean Smith kind of changed the game, not only at half time, I think. We talked about substitutions, but I think at half time as well. He kind of, even though Norwich weren't on it, and he knew that you could see him on the sidelines, Dean Smith knew his side weren't on it, but he, he still changed things because of that. And he, he, he kind of um, matched Sunderland in, in the second half. Um, but do you think there's that element uh, that our team is a little bit naive at the moment and we're dropping points because of that kind of game management? Uh, part of the game. I, I, yeah, I think Phil was spot on. I mean, I think what Phil said was absolutely right. I mean, about this, this, this is a, it's a developing team, if you like, and it has got. I mean, bear in mind, of the twenty-four, was it twenty-five members in the squad at the moment? I think um, I did it up the other week, and it's roughly this. I think fifteen or sixteen of that twenty-four, twenty-five, or twenty-two or under. Um, you know, you've got Pritchard and Evans and Bart and Wright. So you've got a spine of experience, but you've got your Dan Neals, you've got your Dennis Serkins, and they are still, we, we forget, they're still 20 years old. They're still very, very young. Dennis Serkin a year ago was playing under-23s football. Dan Neal, you know, was has only really been introduced in the last year and, and he missed quite a lot of last season because Alex Neal came in and felt he was knackered because he was. Um, you know, these are young players who are suddenly thrown into the second tier of English football with how many former Premier League clubs and how many of those clubs like Norwich have still got Premier League players. You know, this is a huge learning curve for them. And part of that learning curve is, is game management, is learning how to pace themselves during the game. And you're absolutely right about Dean Smith knowing what to do at half time. And then during the game, all the little tricks to slow it right down, take five minutes here. With you know, How many times this season have we seen games where the opposition have had a player go down and then, you know, 
stop the game for two or three minutes. Actually, there's nothing wrong with them whatsoever, but it's a device for them to stop it, slow it down, regroup. And funnily enough, at Stoke last week, Sunderland were quite canny. They did exactly that thing. Patterson went down with cramp. I mean, how ridiculous is that? How, how crazy is it the goalkeeper goes down with cramp? But that was done on purpose. The one player, if he goes down, the game can't go on, is the goalkeeper. So they were very, very shrewd in, in, in doing that. And that is where the learning curve is coming in. I think, you know, with, with the, on the touchline, on the pitch, and that's where, you know, your leaders like Corey Evans and players like that who've got that experience are very important because they'll be the ones that, and I, you know, I think it's very interesting that at Stoke last week, you know, Evans is brought on at half time and it changes the game because Evans suddenly, you know, Alex Neal identified Evans as one of his key players as soon as he came in. And now we've seen why. You can see what Evans brings to this group. Um, and that's where experience comes in. And that's where this squad, you know, as, as Phil was, was talking about, has got to learn that side of the game, off the ball and, and, and managing the game. Yeah. And, and I would argue as well that especially that's true at the Stadium of Light because it's it's kind of easier to do those things away from home, Nick, when you haven't got that expectation and the fans expect you to do certain things. Um, yeah, and I think it was interesting yesterday because, I mean, I, I, I agreed with Phil in the build-up. I thought, you know, I was asked about what would it be like at the game today. I said, well, you know, we almost know what it's going to be like. Everyone will get behind the team. The build-up, um, you know, when you hear wise men say ringing out and kick off, you know that was going to happen. You knew everybody would be behind the team. What what was going to be the, the, the crux was what happens in the next 20 minutes. If Norwich had scored, the mood might have significantly shifted. But they didn't because Sunderland started so well and they played so well. Um, and so, you, you know, it's it's it, there is an interesting dynamic at home and the managers have often talked about it and Alex Neal has talked about it as well, is the expectation on the players, the pressure on the players at the Stadium of Light is huge, especially young players. Um, but then, you know, I think every coach, every manager will tell you, if you want to play for a club as big as Sunderland, you've got to be able to deal with that. And if you can't deal with that, you're probably not the right player, the right fit for this football club. And there's, a, I mean, it sounds brutal, but it, there's a lot of truth in that. Yeah. You know, you've got to, you're not, you're not coming to, um, uh, um, I think was, oh, is it Mike Jack Ross or one of the managers said, at Brentford, you can make eight mistakes before the crowd get on your back. At Sunderland, it's one mistake and they're on your back. And that's the difference. Yeah, yeah. I mean, on that point, as a, as a fan, Phil, I mean, three games so far at the stadium are like two draws and a defeat. I'd yeah. argue that all three were cracking performances, certainly in periods anyway of, of those games. I mean, should we be concerned at all that we're kind of playing so well and not picking up the points that we deserve? Or do you just think the results will come? Uh, yes and no. I think we've. I, I, I think sitting back and just kind of convincing ourselves that it's going to happen is dangerous. I think we've got to be proactive and make sure that we make it happen, and that comes from being smarter with game management, better use of substitutions, etc., etc. Um, but on the other hand, you know, and I said this after the QPR game, which was an immensely frustrating result. Again, maybe two of those games we should have won. Coventry we should have won if we'd seen the game out. We win, and QPR we definitely should have won. That was a game thrown away. But I, I remember. You know, going home after the QPR game and speaking to some, you know, fans on the bus, and I just said to them, I said, "There's no issues with this team that we can't fix with a bit of hard work on the training ground and a little bit more, you know, game intelligence." Um, and I think that's the most encouraging thing that I've taken from the home game so far, Chris, is that you know 
the, the the differences between the two the three teams between you know the teams we've played at home and ourselves is not particularly massive you know it's not, there's not a sizable gulf in quality there and um, and and again I think I think really it's more to do with kind of fine tuning rather than a complete overhaul of the playing style or the you know our, our mental approach to the game um so yeah I, I think it is a concern to a point that we haven't managed to convert uh, promise into points at home so far this season. But on the other hand, I think certainly I've been pleasantly surprised because obviously, you know, you'll know this, you know, before the season kicked off, one of the kind of the the narratives that was going around was, well, this squad was only good enough for fifth in League One and it was only because of Alex Neal coming in that they got promoted through the playoffs, etc., etc. But, you know, I I was of the opinion of, you know what, let's give these lads a chance. Let's back them. We've got a young core of players here with a lot of potential. Let's see how they handle it. And as Nick said, you know, know, with the likes of Dennis Serkin and Dan Neal, to me look as if they're taken to the championship with, you know, ease. You know, I mean, they've had a few, you know, they've had ups and downs naturally. And obviously, Dan Neal's red card was a, was a frustration. But, you know, they are looking very, very comfortable at this level. And there's so much more to come from them as well. So, yeah, I think it, it, it is a concern that we aren't quite making that breakthrough at home yet. But we've just got to keep working at it, you know. And I, I don't think any of the issues we are facing at this moment in time are insurmountable. I think with, you know, whoever the new head coach is, if he can come in, if he can address the, the, some of the issues that are hindering us at this moment in time, I think we can absolutely start to turn potential at home into results. Yeah, I always remember the first season at the stadium alight when results weren't quite going our way to the start of that season under Peter Reid. And Peter Reid kept saying that we're making chances, so I'm not concerned. As long as we're making chances, I'm, I'm happy because then it will come. As soon as we stop making chances and creating chances and should be scoring goals, then yeah. then that's the the time. So I'm hanging on to that. I'm hanging on to Peter Reid's assessment of the opening of that season, but um, you know, to to kind of assume things will go right at some point. But let's move on to kind of what's next. Um, and Nick, I'm I'm kind of you know certainly informed that you know during your commentary, you mentioned um the links with Tony Mowbray, and then I think it was mentioned on Sky Sports News. After I think you you were the first person to mention it. I think the the, the Tony Mowbray links. Um, I mean, it's it's weird from my point of view because he's been present at our games prior to to the one this weekend, and he was at the the game this weekend. There was photographs with people outside the game, you know, before the game started and and things like that. So it seems like Mowbray kind of had a few ties. Obviously, the link with Stuart Harvey from the Blackburn days. But it was all prior to Alex Neil leaving, so it's a it's a weird one. And is that just an obvious link because he has those links? Um, well, it's an obvious link, but I mean, as we understand it, in the latter stages of yesterday, um, we're, we're led to believe Tony Mowbray is going to be the man coming in. I mean, the club's in a strange position at the minute; they can't really say anything because Alex Neil's not been announced as <laughs> the new head coach or manager at Stoke. And while that's not been done, to all intents and purposes. Alex Neal is still Sunderland's head coach. So the club's in a bit of a strange position with this. And I think that was what led to a little bit of sort of confusion yesterday afternoon as to to where they they are exactly and what they can say and what they can't say. But I mean, as far as we in the sort of media were concerned, the way we've sort of seen it now is that it it will be Tony Mowbray. um, And it's now just a case of, waiting for Stoke to make their announcement and for the agreement with Tony to be sorted out. Um, you know, the one thing they, I think they were very conscious of this time was they don't want this two-week hiatus like they had 
when Alex Neal came in. They wanted to get things done swiftly. And if you look at it objectively, Tony Mowbray lives in Yarm. He's an experienced championship manager. He's been watching Sunderland. He knows Christian Speakman. He, you know, it, it, it sort of fits all the, the all those the ticks, if you like, for the club looking to bring in someone swiftly um, and avoid a long drawn out process where they interview however many potential coaches because they've got a game on Wednesday, then next Monday and and and, and onwards, you know. So I think um, it, it it does look at the moment very much, you know, like it's going to be Tony Mowbray. I mean, I, you know, the caveat to that is you, you're just never quite 100% sure. But the way we understand it is that does look to be the situation. Yeah. But, but I mean, just on that point that he... he... Um, you know, he knows Christian Speakman, he knows Stuart Harvey. You assume that the club had a draw in some, you know, had a list in some draw, <laughs> you know, that a list of names in case. Uh, well, they have. I mean, I mean, Christian Speakman said before, he, you know, they always, he's, he, I mean, he, he talks about his database of players, but in the same way, he's got a database of potential coaches. And it was, he's always said that when one leaves, we've got a list here, we go straight into that list and, you know, start sort of, um, making the contacts and, and ringing round. I, I, I think they've been shocked into acting quickly here by, by but basically a phone call on Friday from their current head coach or Stoke to say, well, Alex is, is going. Um, and then suddenly they need to do, to do something quickly. Um, and I think, you know, Tony Mowbray being uh, on the spot, if you like, did actually solve a lot of problems for Sunderland. It was just kind of sheer circumstance and coincidence that Tony Mowbray has been coming along to the games and then suddenly there's an opening and he goes straight in. I, I, yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think that is coincidence. I think he's just taking in football. I mean, Benno knows him well. I mean, he's known him for years because he used to coach Andre, Benno's son. You know, Tony's a football man. I think, he, you know, as I say, he lives in Yarm. And I suspect if you'd spoke to Middlesbrough fans, he's probably been going to as many Middlesbrough games as he's been going to... Sunderland games. I think he's just taking in football matches, um, keeping his hand in. You know, I think you know with a you know with a view down the line that another job will will come up. I mean, I don't suppose he saw this one coming. Like I don't think any of us saw it coming. You know, a week ago. So you know, as in, he's, he's, you know, we know in football things happen very very quickly, yeah. um, and you know, and, and they have here exceptionally quickly. I mean, as someone pointed out, there was a tweet actually uh, before the weekend or over the weekend that said. Knowing Sunderland, here's Stoke who've managed to appoint a manager within a day of sacking their old one. Sunderland will probably take three weeks and appoint another parkey. <laughs> so, and I can understand that sentiment. And I think this time round, they've tried to avoid that scenario and they've tried to react quickly in the same way that Stoke have reacted to getting, um, you know, to sacking Michael, Michael O'Neill, which I understand there was a decision being made even before the Sunderland game and appointing. Alex Neal. Yeah, I think there's um, on on the old Sunderland annuals behind uh, behind me at the minute. I think there's a few pictures of Gary Bennett and Tony Mowbray, you know, challenging in the air and stuff like that. I'm sure they had <laughs> uh, quite a few battles <laughs> back in back in the day for Sunderland in, in Middlesbrough. But um, but I mean, Phil on on Tony Mowbray because there's been other links this morning, um, and the 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 name escapes me now. But the Chelsea coach who was in the island set up. Um, Liam Manning as well has been linked. I mean, do you think if if Nick's right and Tony Mowbray is the man, do you think he fits the model? Because 
I'm not quite. It sounds like he's worked with Stuart Harvey and in a similar model. So you'd assume that would be a natural fit. Yep, absolutely. I would have my full backing um, if he if he does come in. Experienced coach, um, you know, wouldn't be over overawed by the challenge of coaching Sunderland. Um, you know, I think he would be able to come in and, and maintain, you know, the, the the path that the club's on under Alex that was under Alex Neil. Um, I don't I don't think he would be a, a footballing dinosaur like Phil Parkinson. Um, I think because he would inherit a much better squad than Parkinson ever had at his disposal for a kickoff. Um, and yeah, I think he would tick a lot of boxes. He's probably not the most inspirational um, candidate. You know, he's he's probably not a kind of guy who you know is is kind of hold the front page. But it seems to me, Chris, that you know that if the, if it is going to be Tony Mowbray, that that confirms what I've been thinking for quite some time now, which is that consolidation in the championship is the club's number one priority this season. Which, in my opinion, is absolutely right. You know, we cannot afford to drop out of this division again. We have to be playing championship football in twenty three twenty four next season. And there's no doubt in my mind that under Tony Mowbray we would we would achieve that. That wouldn't be that wouldn't be an issue. I think he would get us solidly in mid-table. I don't think we would be anywhere near the relegation zone. It might not be the most entertaining football you've ever seen in your life, but I think it would be functional. I think we would be leaving games having seen them winning most of them or drawing most of them. And yeah, I, th- I think it would be I think it would be a fit. And I, you know, I know he's made you know he made comments about Sunderland. You know, after a game that we played against West Brom back in 07 about how they would West Brom would finish higher than than Sunderland. Um, after we beat them at the Hawthorns, and there might be a bit of bad blood there, but it's all water under the bridge now. At the end of the day, as, as Nick rightly said, the club cannot repeat the mistakes that they made in the aftermath of getting rid of Lee Johnson and then that very public flirtation with Roy Keane. And then it cost us two games, and then we eventually bring in Alex Neal, and then he's in on a salvage job. And I think that's the, the, the that's why the dynamic this time is a little bit different, because whoever comes in is going to be inheriting a, you know, a, a squad that's very much on an upward curve. Um, it's still early in the season, you know. It's not. It's not as if he's coming in with a couple of months and he's kind of desperately trying to save us from relegation or mount a promotion push. It would be all about consolidation. So, yeah, I think Mowbray would be a, a safe, pragmatic choice. I think he would be a continuity candidate, Chris. I think he would very much be, you know, one, you know, a, a, a kind of a like for like replacement for Alex Neil, albeit with more of a willingness to work within Sunderland's structure. Well, just on that point, Nick, I don't know if you've had any specific dealings with him, but maybe what kind of Gary Bennett said or anything like that. It seems to be that it's just, I mean, it's been highlighted recently as well. There's been a certain character that kind of works at Sunderland. If you go through the years, Dennis Smith, Peter Reid, Mick McCarthy, um, you know, Roy Keane, Alex Neal, they all had seemed to have that toughness about them. And I'm mm. not sure what Tony Mowbray is like, but do you think he fits that mould? Um I, I, I would guess he probably does. I think he, you know, we know him as a character from. I mean, I don't know him at all. I've never spoken to him, but I, I know a lot of people who do know him because, obviously, working at, at, at the BBC in Newcastle, there are Middlesbrough fans there. There are you know, TV people who've had lots of dealings with him when he was at Borough and so on. All speak very, very highly of him and, and as, as a very nice bloke, decent bloke. Um, so I've, I've got no doubt, uh, you know, about his credentials. If you like, I agree with what Phil was saying about you know continuity. It, 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 it will be divisive. I mean, I've seen on social media already a lot of Sunderland fans aren't happy with the, the notion that Mowbray might be coming in. And that's, I think, largely down to connections with Middle, Middlesbrough and, and being perceived as maybe a bit of a dinosaur. I, you know, I haven't got those issues with him. I think he, when he, what he did at Blackburn, you know, he did a good job there under, in trying circumstances with Aventis as owners. And I think, you know, he's, he's got a tried and tested record at this level. And as Phil said, you know, that's what we're looking for this season is consolidation. You know, we're not looking, you know, to, to, to finish in the top two and, 
in win every game. This is all about consolidation this season. And to my mind, acting quickly, moving swiftly, getting someone in who knows this league, um, knows this area, understands the expectations, understands the size of the club, is, is probably common sense. It's probably very, it's probably, it's actually probably a very pragmatic appointment. Yeah, yeah. And it's that uh, social media vocal majority added again, Nick, um, that aren't happy with, <laughs> with a certain appointment. Well, yeah, see, and, 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 it's a, and it's a, the danger is being swayed by things like that. I think, you know, you've got to take, you know, you've got to, step back from this sometimes and look at it in the round, you know, you know, the overview of this is if you put down, if you had put a piece of paper down and said, right, here's the, here are the bullet points, experience, knows the league, um, understands the club. I mean, he ticks all those bullet points, if you like, um, you know, you're gambling to my mind. If you bring in an up and coming young coach, who's, you know, not, not really had any, league experience or you know much league experience you're gambling it's a big gamble um and this season i don't think Sunderland can afford to gamble they cannot get relegated yeah whatever happens this season you know the big the elephant in the room is relegation they cannot afford to go back down to league one so a safe pair of hands to my mind is is is, is essential is it's absolutely prerequisite in whoever you appoint yeah, well, I, I'd like to think we're still looking up the table, but there you go. And and typical of football to throw up these quirks, Nick. Um, Rotherham at home on Wednesday, and then if Mowbray is appointed, yeah, Middlesbrough, Middlesbrough yeah. on on Monday, where he was, of course a player for ten years or whatever. Then he was manager for a couple of years, so a couple of huge games coming up in the calendar, Nick. Um, I think every game's huge. I mean, to the old cliche, I think you know Alex Neil was always right in saying, "I'm I'll take the next game, and then we'll deal with." the next game after that, after this one, so, so to speak. Rotherham's the biggest game now. I, I've got no, ultimately, I've got no fears against Rotherham. We know Rotherham, we've seen them last season. We know what they they offer. We know what Paul Warren's teams uh, are set up like. They're strong, they're physical. Um, you know, there's there's going to be that aspect of the game that Sunderland have got to deal with. But I, I wouldn't, I'm not, I'm not sort of scared of Rotherham. On the, on the evidence of the football that I've seen Sunderland playing this season so far, I'm I'm looking forward to it. You know, I'm actually looking forward. I'm going to games and I'm looking forward to them because the football's good. And, you know, we're seeing, you know, some quality play now at this level. And um, so, yeah, uh, Rotherham, uh, bring it on, basically, is my message. Well, on that note, <laughs> and and before another major incident is declared in the world of Sunderland Association Football Club, we should probably call it a day. Uh, thanks, Phil. Always a pleasure, mate. Thanks, Chris. Thank you very much. Good stuff. And, and thanks, Nick, for shedding some much-needed light on the past 48 hours and taking the time out for us once again. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Good stuff. And thanks again, everyone, for listening. Uh, keep a look out at the Report for all the build-up ahead of the Rotherham game in midweek, as Nick said. And keep an eye out in all the usual places for the next pod that should be dropping very soon. But from us, bye for now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.